Well, Happy New Year. I hope you had a good Christmas and New Year. As we begin this year, our, our prayer is that you would find in Jesus contentment and perseverance and hope. Contentment, perseverance, and hope. So you say, I don't even want contentment. That's part of the problem right now, right? These actually are key words for this coming year. We want people to know that God is everything when we have nothing so that we can persevere and hope through anything. I'll say that again. We want people to know that God is everything. God is everything even when we have nothing so that we can persevere and hope through anything. This is why we hope to study as we look ahead. Would you like to know we're kind of looking ahead to 2022 and what we're hoping to study and pray through and, and, and grow in? Well, these are the books that we identified. We've been taking the last probably four or five months uh, praying through what God wants us to. And we, we said, um, starting in February, we're going to uh, study through the book of Job to gain, gain contentment through, and to gain a theology of suffering. Uh, we also hope to study through the book of Jude in uh, late summer to, to gain uh, understanding what it means to persevere. And then um, we also thought that it would be good in the last quarter of the year to study the, the book of Micah to gain hope in confusing times. And so these things will help us have contentment and perseverance and hope, uh, not just for ourselves, but for others, really to bless others. And so actually we're beginning this year, this first month of January, we're going to study um, the whole idea in Luke chapter 10 of blessing others. And that's an, uh, an acronym that uh, Pastor Jason and I were introduced from a Canadian pastor by the name of Daniel M. And uh, he got it from a church in Chicago called Community Christian Church. And the word bless stands for this. Begin with prayer. So pray for the people in my life and the places that I'm in. Listen. So I'll listen to and discover the needs of others in places where God is at work. Eat. I'll share meals and spend time with people in my life. I know that you can't do that to the full extent that you would like to, but maybe through Zoom or whatever way, it's important to have table fellowship. And, and when you have a, a meal with somebody, that really, really actually breaks down walls and, and uh, is an act of love. And then serve, um, that we will respond to the needs of others and help in practical and impactful ways. And then story. We have to get to this last thing of telling the story of Jesus. All those other things we could do and not necessarily be Christian, but it's important we actually get to the gospel. So that's bless. But it all begins with prayer. And so uh, today we need to understand that blessing is important as we seek to bless others. Blessing is not, it, I would say, is really unique to the church in this way. The late uh, William Temple, Archbishop of Canterbury, said the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. We exist not for ourselves. We exist for God and for our community. And this is why we want you to be a blessing. And we want you to think of this blessed strategy as individuals in your, your circle of friends and influence, but also as a church, as we meet together in our meetings, that we would, we would adopt this blessed strategy. It's church-wide. But it always begins with prayer. And when we look at how Jesus sent out his first disciples, we see that he sent them out to be a blessing to the towns and cities and surrounding region. 
And, and this is really the discipleship strategy that Jesus employed right from the beginning. If you have your Bibles, please look to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to stand for the reading of God's word. From Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1, we're going to go through verse 3. We'll do a deeper dive through um, Luke uh, 10 and these, these early uh, discipleship strategies. And we'll take a little bit of a detour to Matthew, Matthew 10, which is a corollary passage, uh, next week. But here's what it says in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. That's really important. I want you to remember that. Then verse 2 says, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. That last part doesn't sound really fun. But you'll be encouraged, hopefully, by the end of this message about that. You may be seated. This passage in Luke 10 really revolutionized how I uh, have, have discipled people this last maybe 10 plus years. I used to take people through a sort of catechism where people learn all the doctrines of the faith. And this strategy bore some fruit, but it bored others, if I could put it that way. People gain more knowledge. And but we are warned that knowledge puffs up. Love builds up. And so I also learned as I watched and I tried to disciple people that I didn't see many disciples making disciples. Much reproduction of disciples. Then one summer, I decided just to, to read through the gospel, the gospels of, of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and just try to read them at face value and say, well, how, how can we actually just try to live these out? See, the gospels are written, many of them after or, or during the time of Paul. And, and you think about that, there was a reason why. Because some of the churches maybe forgot about Jesus. They forgot about the stories of Jesus. And how quickly we can forget about Jesus and what he did. And so what I did was I, I read the gospels at face value and, and took them at face value. And I was like, wow! I, I just... It was like I fell in love with Christ all over again. I, I just couldn't believe how revolutionary Jesus was, who he was and what he did. And I hope that you will regain that first love of Jesus. I had to challenge you this, this month. Read through the Gospel of Luke. Ask God to speak deeply into your heart about this. And so as I read through Luke, I was blown away by who Jesus was. And instead of indoctrinating his new disciples, he sends these neophytes, or what we would call today, the next generation called noobs, okay? Noobs out two by two into the towns to share the good news of the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus, as the master teacher, he knew that the majority of people learn not just by listening to a lecture, but by putting what they know into practice. In fact, there's a little bit of a danger. Educators tell us that people, most of us are, are, are not auditory learners. 
And we only retain about 5% of what we hear in a lecture, which always makes me nervous because I'm preaching here today, right? So this is why I encourage you to be a part of a small group where you're actually trying to practice, practice what is being preached. So what does Jesus do? He sends out these new disciples into every town and, and think about why would he do that? He didn't give them all about who he was and teach them all these doctrines at this point. Because as those disciples would go into the town and they'd tell them about Jesus, I'm sure there was lots of questions. You're claiming Jesus is potentially the Messiah? How do you know that? And immediately, disciples would, would have to, to start to think, well, why do I know this? How do I believe this? It, it bolstered their own faith, but it also caused them to go seek answers. They needed to find help for people. And so verse 1 makes it clear that Jesus wasn't leaving them on their own. It says, after this, the Lord, look at it, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others. Now, this is a side here. Some of your translations may say 70 others. And that's not a contradiction. Because if you have 72, you have 70, right? Logically. It says 72 others and sent them on ahead of them two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. I would underline that, that last little section, that he himself was about to go. That's critical. Jesus was coming. And this is why Temple's mission statement says, we are on mission with Jesus to turn broken people into whole people who multiply Christ's followers. This isn't just our mission. We're joining Jesus on his mission. It's not just Jesus and you. It's Jesus and us. Jesus is going with us. And notice, did you also notice that in verse 2 it says that Jesus sent them out two by two. Now we can think back, okay, yeah, two by two, that sounds like something happened in the ark, right? The animals. Why would Jesus send them two by two? Well, the two, the two were acting as witnesses. They had companionship. But when, when you have two people going out, it makes it more difficult for them to be dismissed. Now, one person, they go, oh, that guy, that person's just crazy, right? Or, or they're just a fanatical person. But when you have two people, it's harder to dismiss those, those witnesses, isn't it? And so these initial disciples would be able to, at least one of them, hopefully relate to somebody that they were coming in contact with. They were like heralds in medieval times who went into a town proclaiming that the king was coming and get ready. Remember, have you ever seen those, those they, would, they would yell a trumpet and say, the king is coming. That's essentially way before this ever happened in medieval days. This is what the early disciples were doing. Jesus is coming. We're bringing peace to this town. He's coming with his peace. So this is what Jesus is calling us to do still, to proclaim his coming and his kingdom. You say, well, aren't, don't a lot of people already know about Jesus and hasn't this already happened? There are lots of people who do not know who Jesus is in your workplaces, in your schools, in the community. 
And so we're still called to this type of ministry. Before we do anything else, here's what we must do first. We must pray. Why begin such a mission with prayer? Is prayer just like the religious thing to do? Is this just kind of the thing that we church people do as we pray? The big idea of these verses helps us understand it. Jesus sends us to a wolf-infested harvest. So begin with prayer. A wolf-infested harvest. That's how Jesus is sending us to. So begin with prayer. Do you notice that the two motivations to pray are sandwiched between fruit and fear? Between praying for workers and praying against wolves. If you knew that you were going to be successful in your mission, but you're going to come across a few wolves along the way, if I sent Ryan out and said, here, I want you to, I want you to go all the way up north. I want you to, to, to get this, this item for us. This is really important for the church and for our lives and for the community of Cambridge. But you're going to come across some wolves and you will be successful. You're going to pray. You're going to, you're going to seek God. This is what God is calling us to do. Maybe these two motivations are the reason why Jesus is not calling us to mousy prayers, but to mighty prayers. Jesus isn't looking for a bedtime prayer of, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That 18th century prayer, children's prayer, almost sounds like a narrator, right? It doesn't sound very vocative. It's not really... It's not using any pronouns to, Lord, you, you protect me this night. Let me dream of you. This prayer that I'm talking about that we look at in Luke 10 is a down on your knees, hands folded. God, please, please, I'm asking you to show mercy, but not just mercy for myself but mercy for the souls of others. We're not asking Jesus to take our souls. He, those already belong to him. We're asking him to win souls who do not know him, who are part of the harvest. Neil Cole declares the word there to pray means to beg, to plead as if for mercy, as for, for life. And so this is what we're doing. We are, are not pleading mercy for ourselves. We're pleading mercy for those who do not know Christ, who are on their way to hell, who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior and King. I love what Sam Albury says. He says this, and I quote, Prayer is not the flare gun for the desperate or room service for the indulgent, it is, it's the confidence of the adopted. You are adopted children of God and his missionaries. Did you know that today? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are an adopted child of God. And one of his missionaries. No, you might not have to go overseas. You just have to go across the street. And tell it is the good news of Jesus. And as you're going, you're asking Jesus to send more workers, literally to drive them out, to get off their seats. Jesus is telling his, his harvest workers to get out there and start picking the harvest. 
Notice what I said, picking the harvest, not nitpicking, not picking on people, but gathering those who Jesus has regenerated and will soon harvest. Jesus' command is to get out there, sort of like when a parent comes home and tells their kids, their adult kids, young adult kids, to go find a job. Get out of the house. Get off the video games. Bring home some produce. Let's remember that Jesus is giving this command to pray to those already out in the harvest field. You can picture these like hardworking harvest workers. They're out in the sun. The sun's beating down on them and they're like, I need some help. I remember working in the cornfields starting at age 11 and it was so hot and I was like, I, I, I wasn't really strong and I'm like, please send somebody at the end of the row to help pick the rest of the, the harvest here. We were doing corny tasseling at the time and, and, and help with this. That's the picture that Jesus is giving us. The late pastor Warren Wiersbe reminds us, instead of praying for an easier job, the disciples are to pray for more laborers to join them. And we today need to pray that same prayer. And he goes on to say, no, it's the laborers, not spectators, who pray for more laborers. Too many Christians are praying for somebody else to do the job. They're unwilling to do themselves. I have a book in my office. And I think about it often. After, especially after we send out Pastor Aaron and Nikki Ottaway and the rest to, restoration, to plant Restoration Church in the south of Cambridge. And the book says, Lord, send Aaron. <laughs> I'm like, Lord, send us. Send us. You have sent us. Are you and I praying for people to join us and Jesus into the harvest field? Let's work and pray. Jesus promised a harvest because he's already produced a harvest. The harvest has already been produced by Jesus Christ. My friend Jeff Bennett down at um, Harbor Fellowship in St. Catharines, one of our sister churches. They've seen many people come to faith in Christ even through the pandemic. They go into the harvest. They actually call that. They go into the harvest strategy. And the first thing that he says to me and to all those he trains is, do you actually believe that the harvest is plentiful? Man, I feel convicted by that. Because I can easily wake up in the morning and go, man, it doesn't seem like too many... Canadians really want Jesus? Or is the harvest truly plentiful? And we just haven't gone to pick the harvest. We may not see what Jesus sees, but do we believe what Jesus says in verse 2? The harvest is plentiful here in Canada. Maybe throughout this whole pandemic, God has been ripening the harvest. The pandemic has hardened some hearts, but let others do a harvest. May 2022 be the year of harvest as we walk with Christ and we bless others. If so, my friends, my brothers and sisters, we need to do some more begging. Did you know that we have a prayer room? Did you know that we have a prayer bench? I've been told few use it. Many, maybe some of you actually right now need to stop listening to the sermon. You say, John, I got it. And you need to go to that prayer room and you need to pray. 
And you need to say, God, please, please, I'm begging you for the salvation of my family, my friends, my, my fellow classmates, my coworkers, my neighbors, those government officials who keep giving us announcements. I'm praying for them all that they would come to faith in Christ. If this sermon is interrupted by a prayer meeting, then I'm happy to, to step aside. A walkout for prayer should lead to a walk-in of people, people praying for a future where people walk into the church who are far from Jesus and will be well worth our time. Think about this. Our prayers don't actually save the harvest, but God uses that to help us to have of one mind and heart and soul for what he's already doing in the harvest fields. That we have become partners with Jesus himself. We are partnering with Jesus on a rescue mission. So many times I'll watch a show and I'll be like, I want to be like one of those Navy SEALs going rescuing people. But guess what? You actually are. And yours even matters more than, than rescuing somebody physically. You are joining Jesus to rescue somebody spiritually. Where eternity is at stake. Isn't that an amazing call? I'm looking at some of God's operators in his mission. Some of his harvest workers. How many people are you going to be able to lead to Christ this year? Are you going to be able to disciple? Have you thought about that? That would be awesome. That there would be other people joining you in the chairs beside you or or hopefully no longer socially distant because you've led them to Christ. You've gone out into the harvest field. Prayers like the calms for a soldier, we stay connected to him. So we need to pray prayers like, like who do we go to next, Lord? Um, what do you want me to say to this person, Jesus? Father, give me these words for, for this person. Are they ready? Are they right for harvest? These are the examples of staying in constant communication with the Lord. This reminds me, do you remember, did you remember hearing about the missionaries in Haiti that were um, held hostage from October 16th until a couple months later until they were actually freed on December 15th? Did you read about this story? It's pretty amazing. In fact, they made a daring overnight escape eluding their kidnappers, and they walked for, for kilometers and kilometers over difficult and moonlight terrain with, with a baby and children in tow. And God rescued them just before Christmas. They actually were led by the stars, not the star, but the stars before Christmas. Think about, now think about this. If those were some of our missionaries at Temple, what would we do? Would we hold all-night vigils so that God would rescue them from their captivity? I think we would. And so I, I felt really convicted. Well, why are we not holding all-night vigils for people who are in captivity to Satan and are going to hell? People that we love, that we care about. Picture People that are coming to mind right now in your life that you love very much that are in captivity. We need to pray and go. 
Some may be pretty desperate, like those missionaries in Haiti who wanted somebody to pay their ransom. I remember reading about the testimony at the church the Sunday after these, these um, missionaries are freed. And they, they, they got up at church in church in Pennsylvania. And this is what one said. We did start to doubt and say, you know what, why doesn't somebody just pay the ransom money? But I believe that that was Satan whispering to me, the missionary said. Satan makes us start to doubt whether we will ever be free or that others will ever be free. And we can lose hope from this. Today I have good news. Jesus has already paid the ransom, a king's ransom. And this is why Jesus has the audacity to make the outrageous claim and even seemingly reckless statement. Look at it, it says in verse 3. After telling us that the harvest is plentiful, he says, Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You've probably heard that statement if you've been around church any time. But it's a pretty audacious statement. Because we know that Jesus is a good shepherd, right? John 10, 11 says this. We see this in John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is the good shepherd. Why would any shepherd send out sheep among wolves? Isn't that what bad shepherds do? Have you ever thought about that before? And yet we know clearly that Jesus is the good shepherd. So rather than be afraid of some wolf bites and claws, Jesus willingly gave up his life for the sheep. We know that from his own personal example. We also know that good shepherds don't send out their sheep among wolves. Only bad shepherds do. Good shepherds actually watch their sheep, their flocks by night, so that predators don't get a midnight snack of lamb, right? So how can we explain Jesus' statement? Well, church starter and pastor and author Neil Cole enlightened this for me. He says, nobody sends sheep amongst wolves unless they're the good shepherd who goes with them. That's the key. Jesus is going with us. This is what Jesus did and still does. He goes with us. You might think, man, I got wolves surrounding me at school, at work, out in the community. Jesus is with you. Emmanuel has come. God with us. And we see hints throughout the Old Testament about this. One of the most beloved Psalms is Psalm 23, verse 5. Has that ever kind of, kind of twigged your mind going, there's a, a weird statement there in Psalm 23, verse 5, which says, He prepares a table before me in the presence of my what? My enemies. Now, if you know anything about sheep, sheep are nervous, nervous animals. I mean, I have a dog, and sometimes he gets a little bit, what do they call that, food insecure? He doesn't just, he doesn't just eat. He wants to make sure he's safe and no one's going to take his food. Sheep are, are even greater to that extent. They don't eat unless they feel safe. And yet, Jesus prepares as a good shepherd, a table before me in the presence of my enemies, those table lands. How does this be? 
Well, it's because the good shepherd is actually watching over them. Wolves may be circling, but it's dinner time for the sheep, not the wolves. Jesus is watching over us. He's coming. Do not fear. Go into the harvest while you're able to bless others by beginning with prayer. You are sheep who cannot make converts by force in contrast to the wolves, but can rest in what Jesus, the good shepherd, is doing in people's lives. He's already working in people's hearts. Do you believe this today? You might not know who they are, but he's working in people's hearts. Join him in his work. Neil Cole, in his book, The Organic Church, goes on to give an example of of this by telling a story of one of the churches that, that meets is a coffee house in California. And um, let me read this story to you. It was a, a part of a, a movement that, that he has seen many churches been planted. He said, we started a coffee house called Portfolios, which was in a darker, sinister neighborhood. A witch's coven would hang out each night at the coffee house. There were warlocks, Satanists, and vampires. Yeah, there's a subculture of people in California who actually live a strange life and they actually believe the writings and mythological culture of vampires. Some actually file their teeth down to become fangs. Some sleep in coffins and drink blood and drive hearses and come out only at night. Some also practice dark magic and black magic and cast spells on people. Well, Neil Cole says the first person to become a Christian at Portfolio was, was Manuel. Tim, one of our team members, was an excellent evangelist. He sat across the table from Manuel and opened his Bible to Romans 6.23. And he gave it to Manuel to read for himself. Well, just then, Joey, a recruiter for the occult and part of the coven, came in and sat next to Manuel. I've had this happen to my, me too. As, as people, as I try to share the gospel, there's somebody who comes and just tries to distract the conversation. Neil Cole goes on to write, well, then came Joey, a recruiter for the occult. And, 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 um, and so J Joey, Joey was there and he has a foul mouth. So Tim prayed silently, Lord, keep his ears open and his mouth closed. Well, Joey didn't say a word. Then Jack came and sat on the other side of Manuel. Jack is an atheist philosopher who loves to talk but doesn't get very far. He's sort of like that character talkative in Pilgrim's Progress, which I really encourage you to read. And it says, Tim prayed then another silent prayer, and Jack didn't say a word. Finally, Psycho Saul came up behind Tim. Psycho Saul, a name he gave himself, is the leader of the vampires. He's tall and thin and pale, and he dresses all in black with a long black trench coat, as you can just picture this, and a long frizzy hair down his back. Well, Saul leaned over and whispered to Tim, I just want you to know that I have a sword with me. And Tim answered, oh, oh, that's nice. I have mine too. In fact, Manuel is reading it right now. Then Psycho Saul leaned over again and said, no, I, I really do have a sword. And he opened up his trench coat and hanging there was this truly a double-edged sword. And Tim prayed silently again, Lord, keep his ears open and his mouth closed and don't let him cut off my head. <laughs> One thing I know about Tim is that he's not easily intimidated. 
This only helped him to focus more on the opportunity that the Lord had placed before him. And Manuel glanced up from reading at that moment with a confused look on his face. He understood that the wages of his sin was death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And at that moment, Joey got up to leave. Jack got up from the table and walked away. And Psycho Saul took his sword and left. Praise the Lord. Jesus sends us to a wolf-infested harvest. So begin with prayer. Begin with prayer. Maybe this is why Pastor Kyle Rohrer told me of an observation he's made. He, he's gone to some denominational meetings, and at 10.02 a.m. at these meetings, all of a sudden these church planters' phones, alarms go off. And the reason why is they want a daily reminder based on Luke chapter 10, verse 2, which again says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. These church planters and our movement are committed to praying for harvest workers. Maybe this is one of the resolutions you need to make. That you set an alarm at 10.02 every day to pray for harvest workers. Let's not let the church planters have all the fun, right? And reward of a harvest. And, and here's an added bonus for all you 9 o'clock church people. I'll know when to stop preaching at 10.02 if you set your alarm, okay? Sound like a good deal? Begin with prayer. Start your day in prayer. Start your meals in prayer. Start your meetings with prayer. Let's start our year in prayer. Let's, let's make a commitment to be a part of, I think, the most important service of the week, which is our, our prayer encounter at 6.30 p.m. Our youth are meeting at the same time. We pray for that hour. Before we proclaim the good news of Jesus, begin with prayer. God uses prayer to soften hearts. You've seen this in your life and in others. As Daniel M. asked, who do you live with and work with and play with that is far from God? Pray that God would create a spiritual curiosity in them and then spend time with them. Bless people by beginning with prayer. And this is the way to bear fruit and fight fear. Jesus is going with us and he'll bring that contentment and that perseverance and that hope in our lives. I believe, brothers and sisters, this year as we look to him. Let's end this message with praying together, asking the Lord to send forth harvest workers. The worship team will come up, but I'm going to give you just a moment. Maybe just pray right where you're with, the person you're with. Um, pray that God would send forth workers right this year into his harvest field. I'll give you a moment to pray, and then, then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll conclude with the song. God, you are hearing the, the prayers of your harvest workers. 
Lord, there's got to be more manuals out there. You saved manual in California. You could save so many here in Canada, God. Would you do this? But we need more workers to disciple. We need more people to evangelize. God, would you do this? We're not asking to build a name for ourselves. We're asking to build a name for you, God. In a time that is desperate. As Dickens once said, it's the, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, God. We know that you are still working. Bring forth that harvest. We pray in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And God's people said, amen and amen.